I'm Nathan Rutherford, and welcome to Myth Madness. Last time on the pod, I discussed the Greek and Roman myths about the different ages of man. In that story, the world goes from a golden age to silver, bronze, another one for heroes in the oldest version, and finally to the current Iron Age. Life for people gets worse with each age, and the gods make multiple attempts of creating human beings. I also gave a quick overview on the history of ancient Greece. If you want to learn more about ancient Greece, there are other excellent podcasts that talk about it in a lot more detail. Finally, I talked about how the different ages can be used to put the Greek myths into a kind of chronological order, with the creation myth in the Golden Age, Olympian god drama next, and finally the specific myths about human heroes, like the Trojan War story, in the Bronze Age and Age of Heroes. Today I'm going to enter the Golden Age with the first of a series of episodes. It's time to talk about the Greek myths of creation. There are two main sources for the creation myth. One is our returning friend, the Greek poet Hesiod. Last time, I took the Ages of Man myth from his poem, Works and Days. But he also wrote another long poem called The Theogony, where this story comes from. Theogony means birth of the gods. As I mentioned before, Hesiod wrote these poems in the archaic period of ancient Greece. The birth of the gods story is also provided in another work, a collection of Greek myths called the Bibliotheca, or the library. This library was once thought to have been written in the classical period, approximately a couple hundred years after Hesiod, but scholars today are largely in agreement that the Bibliotheca was written during the Roman period, so much later. The library was written by a man named Apollodorus, who we don't know much about today. I will tell the myth according to Hesiod, and point out to you if Apollodorus says something different. So buckle up, here comes the birth of the gods. At first, there was chaos. This is often imagined by people as an infinite confusion of shifting, shapeless elements. However, originally, the Greek word chaos meant chasm, or gap. So instead, imagine chaos like this. It is a great big emptiness, possibly with boundaries, but it's too big to know for sure. And this emptiness is waiting for its space to be filled. In the chaos appear five entities. Gaia, the earth, the foundation of all things. Tartarus, which is dark and in the depths of the earth. Erebus, the darkness between earth and Tartarus. And Nyx, the night. Gaia conceives a child by herself. This is Oranos, the starry heavens. Oranos is said to be equal to Gaia and cover her on every side, just like how the sky covers the earth. Gaia also conceives Pontus, the sea, and mountains. Nyx, the other female force in this group, is also able to conceive children by herself. She will later go on to birth a whole brood of characters. Eventually from her we get Moros, the sense of impending doom, Hypnos, sleep, the Oneroi, a collection of brothers that make up the dreams, Momus, blame, Oises, pain, Nemesis, retribution, Apate, deceit, Philotes, friendship, Jairus, old age, and finally Eris, strife. Nyx is also going to be the mother of the three Moirae, the fates. Their names are Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropos. These goddesses are in the form of old women, and they share one eye and one tooth. They are described as being particularly angry, 
probably because they can barely see or eat anything without having to share that eye and tooth. They will be responsible for giving humans good and bad fates and punishing sinners. Back to the main creation story. Out of chaos, along with Gaia, Tartarus, Erebus, and Nyx, there also came Eros. Eros is the concept of desire. Sometimes it is translated as love. The presence of Eros allows for these primordial beings to begin coupling up. However, these aren't solid couples. As you'll hear in a moment, they basically all end up having children with each other. But first, we have two couples thanks to Eros. This is the beginning of two primordial families. Erebus and Nyx are one couple. From Erebus and Nyx, there is Aether, Brightness, and Himera, the day. It's interesting here that the day is the daughter of the night. Gaia and Aranos, remember Aranos is her son, have sex and form the other primordial couple. With their children, we begin to have some of the more interesting characters of Greek mythology. First, they have the twelve titans. Titans in Greek actually means strainers. In the Theogony, they are Oceanus, the ocean, especially the Atlantic Ocean, as it was imagined by the Greeks as a great ocean river that surrounded the world. We have Koyos, which means intelligence, and his female counterpart, the gold-crowned Phoebe. Then there's Krios, Iapetus, Hyperion, and some more female titans, Thea, which means wide-shining, she's the titan goddess of sight, Rhea, an earth goddess, sometimes similar to Gaia, Themis, Nemesini, which means memory, Tethys, another oceany being, and finally, there is Kronos. He's the youngest, the wily and most terrible of Gaia's children, and he is said to have hated his lusty father. That feeling is mutual. So we have 12 titans given to us by Hesiod. Apollodorus actually gives us a 13th titan, and she is called Dione. After the titans, Gaia gives birth to the three Cyclops, Brontes, Steropes, and Arges. They are described as looking like the gods, except for having a single eye in the middle of their foreheads. Gaia and Aranos have three more children, Kotos, Briareos, and Gaes. Aranos hated these children most of all. Why? Because he thought they were monstrous. They had a hundred arms coming from their shoulders, and they had fifty heads, and were very strong. As a unit, the three brothers are called the Hecatonchires, which means the hundred-handed. Now, I don't know how you could fit all those hands and heads on one body. Pretty cool, really. But Aranos did not think they were so cool. So, he decided to stop them from being born, making sure that as soon as each of his children is born, Aranos takes them and hides them away in a secret place within the earth. In other words, he forces them back into Gaia's body. The order of these births is sometimes put the other way. Apollodorus actually gives it as the Hecatonchires first, then the Cyclops, and then the Titans. Oranos forcing his children into Gaia's body, naturally, causes Gaia to be in a lot of pain. But Oranos is not a good guy, and he actually celebrates what he has done. So Gaia decides to do something about her terrible lover. She creates a great sickle, which Hesiod says is made up of grey flint. But Apollodorus says it is made of adamantine, a magic metal that doesn't actually exist. Gaia goes to her children to tell them the plan. Gaia goes to her children to tell them the plan, telling them that they should punish the vile outrage that is their father. Her children are fearful, and everyone remains quiet. Finally, the youngest titan, 
Kronos agrees. So Gaia gives him the sickle and hides him in a place where he can ambush Aranos. Eventually, old, lust-filled Aranos comes looking for Gaia. He lays on top of her. While his father is distracted, the hidden Kronos stretches out his left hand and grabs Aranos by the balls. In his right hand, he takes that big, long, jagged sickle and cuts off Aranos' testicles. Kronos jumps up and gives this big, bloody mess a good throw, throwing it right over his shoulder behind him. It doesn't seem like Aranos is killed by this, but his castration serves a key purpose. It removes his power, and his function in the myths is now over. Imagine him running, screaming into the night, holding the bloody ripped space between his legs where his prized penis used to be. We're not going to hear much from him going forward. We're not done with his genitals, though. Kronos, being a titan, is quite strong and able to throw them quite a long distance. The genitals sail through the air, dripping blood, and land in the sea. The drops of blood land on the earth, and this impregnates Sky with a few more children, something Uranus is left to remember him by. She gives birth to the Erinyes, also called the Furies. These will be vengeance spirits that punish bad humans in later myths. There's also the giants, who were born wearing armor and holding long spears. And finally, the Meliae, the ash tree nymphs, a type of lesser goddess. Apollodorus gives the Furies names. He calls them Alecto, Tisiphone, and Megaera. Returning to Aranus' severed pieces, they land in the sea and float around, and a white foam forms around them. In the foam, a young goddess grows. The genitals-foam-girl combination floats from the island of Cathira all the way to Cyprus. There, the fully grown goddess emerges from the foam, and grass starts to grow at her feet. This is Aphrodite, the goddess responsible for love and sex, and all the associated whispers and smiles, deceits, and sweet delights. In reward for getting rid of Aranos, Kronos is made king of the universe. This is now the Golden Age. But Kronos doesn't exactly start his reign on the right foot, though. While his defeat of Aranos allows for the Titans to be born, allows for the Titans to be free, Kronos imprisons the Cyclops and the Hecatonchires in Tartarus. Tartarus is no longer described as a deity, but is now a deep, dark place serving as the universe's dungeon. Without Aranos, Gaia is free to choose her other son, Pontus, the sea, as her lover. They will have their own children. We also get a second generation of Titans. Oshinus and Tethys have 3,000, yes, 3,000 daughters called the Oshinids. One of them is named Matis, the titan goddess of wisdom, and she'll be important later. They also have 3,000 sons called the Potomoi. They are the gods of all the rivers of the world. Koyos and Phoebe are the parents of Leto and Asteria, the goddess of stars. Hyperion and Thea become the parents of Helios, the sun, Selene, the moon, and Eos, the goddess of the dawn. Two of the Titan brothers do not take one of their sisters to be their wives. Iapetus, with one of those 3,000 Oshinids, becomes the father of Atlas, Prometheus, Epimetheus, and Minotius. Creos joins up with Eurybea, the flinty-hearted daughter of Gaia and Pontus. They have three sons, Astraeus, father of the winds, Pallas, and Perses, the titan god of destruction. Perses will in turn couple with his cousin Asteria, and their daughter will be Hecate, goddess of witchcraft. Kronos himself marries his older sister Rhea. They will have six children, some of the main recognizable gods of Greek mythology. The first five are Hestia, Demeter, Hera, Hades, and Poseidon, the Earthshaker. Interestingly, Apollodorus actually gives us this exact same order. 
So Kronos is the father of five children, but after he dethroned his father, Oranos provided him with a disturbing prophecy. Just like how Kronos deposed his father, so one of his own children would defeat him. To avoid this, Kronos didn't just decide to not get married and have kids, which probably would have made more sense. Unlike his father, who pushed his kids back into their mother Gaia, Kronos decides to take his kids into his own body. So after Rhea gives birth to each one, he grabs each baby, throws his head back, and then throws them in, swallowing them whole, all five, one by one. And with that cliffhanger, that's a good place to stop for now. We'll continue the rest of this myth in the next episode. Before I move on to talk about Cronus and his children, though, I wanted to provide some additional information to what you've just listened to. I've just retold the beginning of the creation story within Hesiod's poem The Theogony, and supplemented it with the same story told in Apollodorus's library. Together, these tell the most famous version of the ancient Greeks' creation myth. There are subtle differences due to the time between versions, and creative innovation by bards, and the nature of oral storytelling. There were other versions, though, with different Greek and Roman poets not always agreeing on how these early generations of beings came about. Some are given different parents. For example, take Oranos. Hesiod says he was the son of Gaia, and she gave birth to him by herself. But in other traditions, Oranos's parents are Ether and Himera, the day. But one other example I wanted to discuss concerns the titans Oshinus and Tethys. As I mentioned earlier, Oshinus and Tethys were siblings of Kronos and Rhea two of the twelve titans that were the children of Gaia and Oranos. However, there may be another tradition in which Oshinus and Tethys are actually the parents of the titans, and not simply some of the siblings. In the Greek poem The Iliad, by Homer, there are a couple strange descriptions of Oshinus and Tethys, describing them as the parents of all the gods. It's possible that Homer was referring to another genealogy of the gods slightly different from that given in Hesiod's Theogony. The Greek philosopher Plato records a genealogy where Oranos and Gaia are the parents of Oshinus and Tethys, who in turn are the parents of the rest of the traditional titans. There's also something pretty jarring about how the beings in the Greek creation myth couple up. You probably noticed the crazy degree of incest. Mothers have sex with sons, brothers have sex with sisters, cousins couple with cousins. Eventually, we will see aunts hitch up with nephews too. It all seems pretty icky to the modern listener. There are plenty of examples of this in Greek myth, and in the myths of many cultures across the globe. Sometimes in myths, it is shown as the breaking of something forbidden, and punishments follow. Probably the most well-known example of this in Greece is the story of Oedipus, who unwittingly murders his father and sleeps with his mother, and is then punished. Other times, though, incest is done by gods or beings involved in creating the world. We've already seen this with Greece, but let's look at ancient Egypt briefly for another example. In a version of the Egyptian creation myth, we have a god who has two children, Shu and Tefnut. This brother and sister have two children of their own, Nut and Geb, who then have four children, two males, two females, who then form two more couples and have their own children. That's a lot of incest. But just like with the Greek birth of the gods myth, the incest here is met with a simple shrug. Nothing to see here, folks. These aren't the incest taboo breakers you're looking for. Why is this? Well, this is a consequence of the story being a creation myth. They are supposed to tell where the gods and everything came from. At the very beginning, the storytellers are left with only a few things they can do. Incest in these stories is necessary simply because of the plot, 
To remove the incest, entire new family branches would have had to been created. And that begs the question, where did they come from? You'll end up having a creation myth before your creation myth. Finally, if you know a little bit about Greek mythology already, the beginning of this myth may have confused you. Take Tartarus, for example. In Greek myth, Tartarus is a name for the underworld, specifically the location where Oranos imprisons some of his children. However, at the beginning of the Theogony, Tartarus behaves like a person, being one of the original five entities in the chaos, and will even mate with Gaia at some point. This makes you wonder, what the hell are these things? And you'd be right to point this out, as it's not really clear what they actually are. These entities at different times behave like people and breed with each other, or other times they seem like a location. Gaia at times is almost both at once. She talks to her children, schemes against Uranos, but also has her own children hidden inside of her. Whether that is because she is the Earth and her children are hidden caves, or this is some weird example of myth body horror, is really up to how you imagine it. In other cases, though, these entities can also seem to be abstract concepts. Memory, shining, or night, for example. Yet each of those three, Nemesini, Phoebe, and Nyx, also act like people and will be the mothers of other important figures in Greek myth. And some of them are little more than abstract concepts themselves. Nyx, herself, seems a bit more solid. She is described as beautiful in the myths, and Hesiod says she lives in Tartarus and leaves it when Homeric day arrives. This mix of person, place, and thing is all a bit weird and confusing, but that's often how creation myths in many different cultures simply go. We do get to more obvious person-like figures when we get to Guy and Oranos. Their children, the Cyclops and the Hecatonchires, are physical creatures with heads and arms. The Hecatonchires are more monstrous, but the Cyclops and Titans are said to look more like gods. Gods is usually the term that we use to describe the Olympians, the children of Kronos and Rhea, and their own children. But what is the difference between the Titans and gods? Do they look and behave the same? Well, this is also really murky. To understand that, we have to see how the Greeks described their gods. As you'll hear in later episodes, the gods of Greek mythology are anthropomorphic. They usually look like mortal humans in shape, but they are much more beautiful, strong, and also very tall. Interestingly, it's hinted that this isn't their true form, and it is only the form that humans see because seeing the gods as they truly are would destroy any dangerously curious humans. The gods have ichor instead of blood. This is a liquid substance described as golden and may actually be toxic for humans to touch. The gods never get sick, but they do require sleep and sustenance, which they get through a food called ambrosia. They can shapeshift themselves and also turn people into animals, trees, or rocks. The gods can turn themselves invisible and move across great distances instantaneously. They use weapons and wear armor because they can still be wounded. What I find very interesting, though, is that the gods are also described as having their own language that they speak to each other in. In fact, some of the sources of Greek myth actually record some of the words of this language. So where do the Titans come into this? The Olympians, Hades, Hera, Poseidon, and the others are the children of Kronos and Rhea, a Titan couple. The other Titans have their own Titan children, and these couple up amongst themselves too. A couple of the Olympians also end up with some of the Titans. In ancient Greek religion, some of the Titans, not all, but some, especially those younger ones, even had responsibilities like the gods, or were even prayed to by the Greeks. Which is 
food for thought, because if they're worshipped like gods, doesn't that make them gods too? The answer arrives when you look at the main characteristic of gods. They do not die. They are immortal. The Greek poets often describe their gods, usually the Olympians, as the deathless ones. But take, for example, the passage I'm about to read from the beginning of Hesiod's Theogony. He lists and describes a number of the characters I've already talked about but pay attention to how he sums them up at the end. Thence they arise and go abroad by night, veiled in thick mist, and utter their song with lovely voice, praising Zeus the Aegis Holder and queenly Hera of Argos, who walks on golden sandals, and the daughter of Zeus, the Aegis Holder bright-eyed Athena, and Phoebus Apollo, and Artemis who delights in arrows, and Poseidon the Earth Holder who shakes the earth, and reverend Themis and quick-glancing Aphrodite, and Hebe with the crown of gold, and fair Dione, Leto, Iapetus, and Kronos, the crafty counselor, Eos, and great Helios, and bright Selene, Earth too, and great Oceanos, and dark Nyx, and the holy race of all the other deathless ones that are forever. What Hesiod just did there is important. He's lumped a number of titans, and even some of our more primordial beings too, in with the Olympian gods and he refers to them all within a single race of deathless ones. So, to me, imagine the deathless ones as a large, multi-generational divine family or tribe. The Olympian gods are a branch of this family, and the titans represent another generation or branch as well. And just like with large human families, fights between different branches often come about, and the individual figures have to navigate through that drama in the next episode, I'll resume where I left off and continue with the drama between the gods and titans. The next episode will continue our Greek creation myth series with the Titan Amakia.